All right, good morning. If you could please turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. James chapter 4, verse 1 begins like this. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law. And judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are a doer of the law. You are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Conflict has been a part of the church from the beginning of time. We see conflict in the Old Testament. We see conflict as the church begins in the early years of A.D. And there's even a story that we're told of by the writings of Methodius from a bishop of Myra. Myra was a town in Turkey, and this bishop was known for being a man who demonstrated godly character, a pattern of life that was devoted to Jesus Christ. Now, he made mistakes at times, and we'll go over one of those, but in his life, he was faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ under the reign of Emperor Diocletian, who persecuted him many times. His faithful life was demonstrated when he was seized by magistrates, tortured and chained, thrown into prison with other Christians, yet he never lost his confession. They would call him the confessor. This bishop of Myra would serve and even be a part of the delegate of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the council that was against Arius. Arius, a man who believed in one God but denied the three persons of the Trinity. He denied the divineness of Christ, and this man, Bishop of Myra, would want to go against him. Now, when conflict's necessary as a result of theology, there are certain things that we have to keep in mind, like not losing our cool, for instance. Well, in this bishop's mindset to change the doctrine that this Arius guy was teaching to come up with the Council of Nicaea, the Nicaea Creed, he lost his cool. And in fact, at one point in time, he was so frustrated that he was provoked by Arius in his lack of confusion of this doctrine of the Trinity that he walked over to him and slapped Arius in the face. He lost his cool. Now, tradition tells us that 
this bishop, Amira, would later apologize to this heretic. See, he was pursuing something godly, yet he allowed his personal passions to abrupt to the point where he was in a period of sin. It is the last person or the last story of this man that we understand him a little more predominantly by our culture. He was a man of much wealth. His family left him behind with a lot of money, but his family taught him to always be a part of what the Lord is a part of. He did not live a prosperous life. He gave much away to the people around him, and he vowed to live a life of poor and destitute. This man's name? The Bishop Nicholas, St. Nicholas. Now, our society has turned him into a different cultural um, stereotype, but what we see is his faithfulness to the Trinity and his ability to be able to see that conflict arises within ministry and we are to ask for forgiveness at times. But what is it that brings conflict in every church under the sun? Whether in Arizona or California, it doesn't matter. There's going to be conflict amidst elder boards. There's going to be conflict amidst two members. There's going to be conflict in marriages, even between siblings at home. We see conflict between Cain and Abel in the Bible. We see conflict between Saul and David, conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus, and conflict between the world and the apostles. And I bet we see conflict in your life as well. We fight over doctrine, philosophy, vision, ideas, positions of status, politics. The question really is, what do we not fight over? We're not that complicated. We want our will to be done, don't we? But the Bible has something different to say about that. We need to understand what lies beneath conflict, and that is the title of this message, what lies beneath conflict. And predominantly, if we understand what James tells us in these first 12 verses, we'll be able to get past conflict and be biblical in our membership. And that's what we need to seek after today. In the first six verses, verses one through six, we see that the conflict is because of an internal issue in our spirit, personal hypocrisy. We've got to admit our personal hypocrisy in the matter, verses one through six. And then in the second part, in verses seven through 10, we can understand that we are able to defeat our fleshly spirit through personal repentance a traumatic transformation that we need to pursue. God lays out a plan for us. And thirdly, we need to be sobered by the understand that we're not, understanding that we're not to slander Christians because the ultimate judge is God. So let us be sobered as we approach what James has to teach us. The book of James, by the way, can be really thought of by faith working in Christians' lives. And what he does is he sets up things that should not be. And he presents them within the church. And he shows that if we're Christians, if faith is working in our lives, these things should not be in membership. He comes and starts in chapter 4 with this idea of conflict. Let us start in verse 1. James chapter 4, he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He tells us, this source? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? He says that the source among you is something that he's conveying. This is an issue within the church. 
It's easy to find fault with other people, but it's difficult to understand that the source of conflict in our church is within ourselves. It speaks to the diaspora, the 12 tribes dispersed, and he knows that all those churches are dealing with it, just like he can tell today that conflict exists in 2023 in Big Eva. He doubles down and says not only the source of conflict and quarrels, or sorry, um, he starts with quarrels. This is the word for battle, for war, for conflict. It's in fighting when he says conflicts, and it's war and battle. So we have two things here that he's doubling down with. This is not one another behavior. This is intense, gruesome treatment towards one another. This is a strife amidst Christians, severe clashing. This is nothing that we want to be labeled as. And, you know, there's nothing more sad when Christians themselves share in the unity of one Savior, yet their worship shows that their practice is divided. What are we fighting over today? What are the internal battles that are happening in Santan Bible Church today, in our homes and in our marriages? Is it not, as he says, the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? We have an issue, and it's hedonism. He says here in verse 1, the source, your pleasures. The word is hedone. It's where we get the English word derived from hedonism. And it's this idea of pursuing passion, oftentimes used in the New Testament for sexual passion, like in Titus 3.3, but pursuing passion at the expense of all unity in membership. You're hedonistic. We all can have moments of hedonism where we seek our pleasures above the pleasure of the body of Christ, the biblical pleasure. This is that same kind of pleasure that people were using to seek after, not the the will of God, but the will of false teachers and prophets, as it says what will happen in the future days in 2 Peter 2, verse 10 through 16. Those who follow false teachers and false prophets are following them not because of good doctrine, but because of selfish motives, selfish pleasure. It says this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 through 16. And especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reveling judgment against them from the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. I'll just end it there. But the pleasure has reached a point where they no longer seek the Lord's will. They seek their own desires, their own sexual appetites, their own desire for advancing above others. This goes back to the idea that he set up in the context of chapter 2. It's that even our desires can be manifested in our tongue. James chapter 3 is where he talks about the source of the tongue. And look at that chapter real quick. If you look just at verse 6 gives context to set up what we're looking at in chapter 4. In the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. 
and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Our mouth can be a part of the conflict. And even chapter 3, he continues on, and he says not only our mouth, but worldly wisdom. He sets it up with here and says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But he talks about this worldly wisdom, and he says in verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So our conflict brings this nature that is anti-Christian. And what James is telling us here is that in the church, amidst members, conflict still exists. And we need to acknowledge our personal hypocrisy that contributes to conflict in order to get past it and have it resolved. We don't want to be daring, self-willed, animalistic creatures in the church like it says in Second Peter. But we need to operate as one body, many members. Not many members, many bodies. We understand in biblical counseling we have this illustration of the control center of the heart. And this is demonstrated in a lot of different books, but John Street from our class in seminary would bring this up, and the heart is the control center. And through the heart, you can have wrong motives and you can have pure motives. And you can't always prevent what comes into the head, but you can prevent it nesting there and producing wrongful motives that lead to physical actions that hurt the body of Christ. We've got to ask ourselves the question, what have we allowed to be the source of our conflicts? What war are we waging in the church? And do we lust to the point where we consider our own importance more than others? Continue on in verse 2 where he says this, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You know, it's a sad thing when we are not satisfied to the point that we go against the will and the timing of the Lord in order to bring something on our own volition. In the book, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, he has this dialogue of the slippery slope. And when we don't get what we want in conflict, we can uh, respond in few different directions. We can have attack responses and we can have escape responses. And attack responses can begin with assault, they can lead to litigation, and they can end in murder. And defense or escape responses can be denial. Who here acts defensive when they're dealt with conflict? And they can lead to fighting or flighting, and they can lead to even suicide. But the biblical person who sees and recognizes their lust and doesn't want to commit murder understands to overlook offenses, to produce reconciliation behavior, to reach negotiation, to even possibly use mediation with other counsel, and to use arbitration and accountability in order to seek a peaceful result, not murder, as verse 2 says. This idea of lust is a yearning to the point where you desire it so much that it doesn't get controlled by the control center of your heart, and it produces a physical result. Whether it's an anger in your head or it's a physical action towards a brother in Christ, it's associated with non-believers. It's never something that a Christian should be doing habitually. It's something we should repent from, acknowledge, and understand to get past conflict. We need to acknowledge our personal part of the issue. It says, and it continues on, 
In verse 2, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This idea of envious is the word zealous. You're so zealous, but it's not a righteous zealousness. It's, it's zealousness that's produced jealousy. You're envious. They're not things that you want because it's a biblical direction. You want it because you need it now or else you're going to not deal with the person anymore. And you fight, clash severely, the same word that was used before. You quarrel, you wage war. This is the same word that was used before as well. It speaks to the physical and verbal aspect that wages war against one another when the whole time the war is against yourself and you're just not recognizing it. Continues on in verse 2 and he says this, You do not have because you do not ask. You know, when you ask, you need to ask appropriately. And understand that it's always according to the Lord's will in what you're asking. If you turn back to James chapter 1, you look here, he says a similar thing about lacking wisdom in verse 5. It says, but if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's according to the Lord's will. But he says this in verse 6, but let him ask in faith without doubting. Without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not the man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, we need to understand that what we pursue has to be controlled by the Lord's will and not our own will. We can't have a church where everyone is out for themselves. We have to ask of the Lord. We have to let the ask be caused by the Lord's intention. This is a retrospective part of our daily lives that we look and seek. What have I done to contribute to this conflict? And have I asked certain things that were not of the will of the Lord? He says ultimately that they're really with wrong motives. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. This idea of wrong motives is that they are with the wrong moral sense. They're wicked. They are a base. They stem in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, from the lusts of the flesh. In Proverbs 8, verse 13, it's pride and arrogance. They stem with a love of money, 1 Timothy 6, 10. These wrongful motives can be in the form of fear of man, Proverbs 29, 25. And they can even be good things that we want too much, Luke 12, 27 through 34. We can't have wrongful motives when we're dealing with resolving conflict. He says, so that you spend it on your pleasures in verse 3. The so that is so that you become more hedonistic, not more Christian hedonism. You know, we're most glorified when or sorry, God is most we're most satisfied when God is most glorified. That's the quote. <laughs> We're not seeking our own glory. But the idea here is that you're not about the glory of God. You're about the glory of yourself. Your pleasure, your passion, what you want under the sun is far more important than the will of the Lord. And you're willing to make the body fight over it and divide and bring disunity. You know, Titus 3 verse 10 talks about a factious man and turning him away because of how difficult it is to the body of Christ. Even James here equates it to being an adulteress of the Lord. Verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? He associates 
hedonism to enmity with God. You know, ultimately, hedonism, we borrow it from ideas in the world. We're not getting it from the Bible. We understand these concepts of, pursue, uh, concepts of pursuing pleasure from the world, nothing else. And so when that comes in conflict with the Bible and with the church and with the Lord being the one who reigns as the head of the church, we are now being spiritually adulterous. We're betraying the Holy Spirit for the spirit of the flesh. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? You're an enemy of God when you're in conflict. You're behaving like the world. You're behaving like the Gentiles in 2 Peter chapter 2. But he says this, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What is your desire? Is it the Lord's desire or is it the desires that are so influenced in our culture? This idea of wishes usually comes up in the word of philemma. In the New Testament, and that's used primarily as God's will, but here we see this different use of the will, the wish of man. Bulamai, it's the idea that your desire is solely based off your own worldly flesh. You wish it in such a way that you meticulously plan for it. This involves the idea of time of budgets towards it, calendars, studying, mental energy. We give our mind and our will and our action over to worldly pleasures. And it's that exact mentality of planning that James writes against later on in chapter 4 and verses 13 through 18, or sorry, 13 through 17, where he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Our planning should be conditionally based upon what God will bring in our life. And oftentimes, if we stop and reflect on our personal hypocrisy and let it give us a healthy self-introspection, we may see that there are places where we're not saying if the Lord wills, we're saying by my will, by my plans, by my calendar, by my time, by my budget, but not by the Lord's will. And we then, in effect, become spiritual adulteresses to allegiance with God. This word makes himself, brings the reader to draw the attention through the grammar here. It's so unique. It's just this idea that you are self-appointing yourself in the position of God. Makes himself an enemy of God. It's exactly what Satan did as a created being. Making himself an enemy of God and it's exactly what we do when we self-appoint ourselves in a position that says we know what the intentions of God is in our life more than God does. It's the same word that we get the word ordination from in the New Testament. And the ordination idea is the idea that you want other mature men to confirm you and lay hands upon you. But for a man who self-appoints himself, that's never the humility approach. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You're not only performing the action, but you're responsible for the consequence. So no wonder there's conflict in your life. 
And that's where we've got to come and understand, man, if, if I have brought this conflict, if I understand that I've been a part of the consequence of this action of mine, there's got to be a way to get past this as a Christian. And there is in a moment. But he says, as he continues on, that we need to understand this is written for a reason. Verse 5, or do you think that Scripture speaks to no purpose? He who jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. God desires all of our being. He desires complete allegiance of our soul and being. And he wants us to be in allegiance to him. Again, we don't need to be in allegiance to the world. We need to be in allegiance to God. Our desires need to be reflected in biblical truth, and that biblical truth will be manifested in love for the brother and not fighting and in gathering of fighting. There is a reason that he put this here. For us to do some soul work. Not to think it applies to another church or to only the church that was written in the diaspora, but it applies to us at Santan Bible Church. It applies in leadership. It applies at home. It applies in marriages. It applies in serving. Even on Sunday morning, it applies everywhere because he desires our full allegiance, the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. I take this as the lowercase spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but the fallen spirit of man. The selfish nature which we still fight against that Romans speaks of. The idea is that we need to understand we're not to have our old self continually prop up in the nature as a Christian, but we're to have the fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of enmity. That is the deed of the flesh. So, are we fully allegiant to the Lord? Does our church in gathering reflect that? And do we have an understanding of ourselves and what we bring to conflict? Are we willing to see our personal hypocrisy in this matter? He says in verse 6, and he continues on, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a quote from Proverbs 3, 34, and we understand that the religious meaning of grace took on a whole new way in the New Testament. That grace was not only something to be starting in salvation, but it continued on in sanctification. And that if we are to be a church that resolves conflict, we are to be a church that understands that we need to allow God's grace to produce past our own sinful internal actions. If we're not willing to humiliate ourselves, then the Lord will not bless us. He gives grace to the humble. Well, we are seeking that grace. We are seeking to understand our personal responsibility in matters of conflict. And that was point one, that we know the spirit, the fleshly spirit is the issue. We are personally hypocrites when we're involved in conflict, and we need to acknowledge that. But we continue on and we realize there's a plan for us to get out of this. We can defeat our fleshly spirit in verses 7 through 10 through large transformational repentance. And that brings glory to God. Let's look at verse 7 through 10. He starts this concept here, a little bit of a biblical counseling terminology. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's telling you, that you need to submit, but submission involves you putting off. 
You need to be able to submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. You have a part to play in resolving conflict. You need to be able to see that you're in subjection to God, first and foremost, not subjection to worldly desires that are ruled by the prince of darkness. And that you are responsible for initiating action towards confession and transformation. Christians submit to God, and this is a trained aspect. This is something that you need to put in your tool chest that understands, I need to train myself to learn to submit by bringing myself to God through denying worldly passions. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is a conditional imperative, meaning if you resist the devil, and you should, he will flee from you. But oftentimes, we don't want to resist the devil. We still want him to flee from him, and we blame a demon instead. (laughs) When James 1 teaches us the whole time that we can't blame demons or the devil, we got to blame ourselves. Because we're the one who allows it to birth to sin, where we don't let the heart control center respond in a way that brings pure motives. We shouldn't be deceived as a result of this. We've got to put off Satan's attacks. And he promises that he will flee from us. He's not going to be lurking around in this area. We need to understand that God is a promise keeper. Put that promise in the back of your pocket that if you proactively go about the measures of resisting the devil, he will flee from you. He doesn't only say put off, but he says move in the positive direction as well. Put on in verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is the positive side of encouragement for the believer. Not only submitting to God means putting off devil's temptations when you think about somebody a certain way not letting it nest and build and think about the conversations but he also says uh, putting yourself in subjection to God is now drawing near to him so you got the positive and the negative you got the put off and the put on draw near to God and he will flee from you or sorry draw near to God and he will draw near to you I hope God doesn't flee from you (laughs) this is what happens when you have four hours to prepare a sermon (laughs) But cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We get into some strong language here now. All right, now I want you to think about the last time you reflected on somebody who repented in the church. Okay. Oftentimes, worldly sorrow produces worldly repentance, 2 Corinthians 7, right? And the repentance seems superficial at times. We uh, usually it comes in a very short period of time. We have this concept that um, the person's happy all of a sudden again. But in James, we see a totally different situation, a totally different use of verbiage going on here. One that is direct, one there that is commanding, one that is strong in its language. And it's this idea that there's a total change in direction of a person's life. It's an internal transformation of the soul. Nearness to God is a basic call for a Christian. And it involves several actions. We want to continue to start here when the first idea is this idea of cleansing your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is the idea of total restoration. 
It's the idea that David had in Psalm 32 when he knew his sin before the Lord first and foremost. And he said this in Psalm 32 verse 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He knew he was sinful. He wanted a covering. He wanted to be cleansed. He knew that he needed to be dealing with the Lord in this issue. He said in verse 2 of Psalm 32, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute the iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again, that idea. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day. He had physical issues as a result of unconfessed sin, unlamented sin. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. The Lord is intentional in bringing dark circumstances to your life at times because you're not dealing with spiritual matters. Now, I'm not saying that's a blanket case for every situation that we deal with when somebody's dealing with depression, but biblically, it is right there in the text of Psalm 32 and James 4 that spiritual depression is a real thing that can manifest in physical issues. Continue and look. My vitality, verse 4, was drained as away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. He wants us to meditate on the idea that God had a heavy hand upon the unrepentant. But here's the key, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. He did verses 1 through 6 in James 4. In my iniquity I did not hide. He didn't keep any of it to his own self. He let it all out there before the Lord, and that's the beautiful thing we see in the testimony of the Psalms of David, that he knew how to deal with the Lord. He knew how to submit himself to God. He knew how to draw near to God. Therefore, he says, or, um, I did not hide. Uh, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, verse 6, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. We, as members of Santan Bible Church, need to understand our role in confession is not purely a matter of individual repentance, but it's also a membership matter. When we signed that covenant, we understand that we are responsible for dealing, dealing with our pure devotion to the Lord and how it affects the body of Christ. First and foremost, our relationship to God, but how it affects our in-fighting, our in-gathering. And today, when we take communion, we need to understand that it wouldn't be a far-fetched idea for somebody that's in a conflict today before they take communion to go to another brother or sister in Christ and ask for forgiveness. That's a practice that I believe we should see at times in the church because then we would be putting on and drawing near to God. In verse 9, we start to see the idea of lamenting, showing this idea of pulling the plank out of your own eye. You know, this isn't a person who's written a document about what somebody else is guilty of all of a sudden. They've really written a personal biography of their own sinful nature. And we see in the use of four following imperative terms, there is really deep language about the transformation of a person who laments here. Look at verse 9. Be miserable and mourn. Man, that's a godly characteristic for somebody who's in sin. Miserable and mourn. It might not be a godly characteristic for the person who's pursuing hedonism, but it is for the person who's pursuing God. This idea of miserable suggests a devastation 
based off of the character you've seen prop up in your life? Are you devastated? Have you looked at the rubble beneath you and seen an aftermath of violence to the point where you're devastated at all of the casualties that you've left behind? And you mourn. You grieve the loss over this sin, the spiritual loss of sanctification, the loss of a friendship, the loss of a brother in Christ, that you had that sweet nectar or aronement of fellowship at one time. We grieve death, but do we grieve sin in the church? Kay Richardson said this, when evil desire within the believer's heart is acknowledged and attacked, then its condition can be truly mourned. Are you attacking your own sin like you attack the sin you believe to be in other Christians? And this is something we all have to do. We have to cry out and wail out to the Lord. How many of us have water on our floors where we pray? Tears. And how many of us understand that we're not to think of repentance or lamenting as something that happens quick and transactionally that fast? It sometimes means you need to be in a period of gloom. Look with me again at verse 9. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That's not a characteristic of the world. But oftentimes we want to smile our way through conflict. It says here, grief. And sadness are the result of a repentant heart. We don't want to put on um, sackcloth and ashes, but we do want to understand we're not to be happy when we realize we've offended the bride of Christ so much. The idea this is put into the language here, be turned into mourning, is the idea that you let it happen to yourself. It's an heiress passive imperative. You're letting the Lord take the action of his sanctification and his work of the Holy Spirit through your life. You're not resisting. You're resisting the devil, but not the Lord. Are you letting the Lord work in your life to the point of mourning? Your joy to gloom, this is a distinguishing characteristic of a Christian. To know when to be happy and to know when to be sad. This is a depression, spiritually, that you need to understand the gravity of your sin. Allow God's grace to bring you past it, but don't go past it before God's grace has done that result for you. The realization that your faith hasn't been working properly brings depression. Not the depression associated with feeling bad for yourself, as some have the habit of, but because things aren't going according to your plans, you don't feel bad for yourself, but a realization that you have been lifting your own preferences above God. You need to be broken over that type of sin. It's repentance full stop, even if it means confessing your wrong behavior to a heretic, like St. Nicholas did. Oftentimes, in the presence of sinners, we sin the most. And when we became Christians, we realized that everything wasn't just a fairy tale life. The Christian life began. And we need to resolve conflict. We understand ultimately the true appropriate response is humility in verse 10. Humility brings the most glory to God. Look at verse 10 with me. Humili- humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. How many of us are exalting ourselves and then wanting to be viewed as humble? 
Because members are smart. We catch on to that in each other, don't we? And it's through the sanctifying grace of being self-introspected in your own heart, dealing with your own sin, bringing yourself down to a point of abasement, not considering your privileges to be something that you can exercise, like Christ in Philippians 2, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not regard his privileges, his divine privileges, something that needed to be exercised in the moment when he very well could have. But he laid aside his divine privileges to present humility upon the cross and die for us. And so are we reflecting Christ-like behavior in our Christian life that God would on the cross say, that's my Christian. That's a humble Christian. And if we do that, then the Lord can bring us to a place of exaltation. It's a race to the bottom. We think up, we got to come down, and then down will we'll be brought up. Up, down, down, up is the idea of the Christian in humility. Let the Lord do that work in your life. Well, as we continue on, we've been presented with a very sobering idea that we're the issue. Our fleshly spirit is the issue in verses 1 through 6. We have to confess that before the Lord in verses 7 through 10, bringing glory to God by humility. And then in verses 11 through 12, we're, giving, we're given a sobering ending to this. The idea is this, that we're not to slander Christians because we need to remember the ultimate judge of the flesh is God. Let us look at verse 11 and 12. Verse 11, don't slander. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Well, this idea of slander is only mentioned five times in the New Testament. Two in 1 Peter as referring to people outside of the church and the character that we need to have as Christians, good character, so that when we are slandered by other believers, or sorry, by people that are non-believers, their accusations fall dead. They don't carry any weight. They don't have trustworthy witness to go and be evidence with those statements. Those are the first two occurrences. The other three occurrences in the Bible are all here in James chapter 4, verse 11. And it's the idea that it speaks about negative false accusations with malicious intent within the brethren. It's behavior that's so non-Christian that it should never be mentioned in the church. We understand he sets this up with the idea of speaking against. It's an attack, an assault on the character. It's slander because it's going to make their reputation worse amidst the community. You're blaspheming their character, and it's a character you really don't know anything about. You haven't done your homework. You haven't brought witnesses. You haven't brought further testimony. You haven't laid it beside with evidences. It's just conjecture in your own mind because it's getting in the way of your own hedonism, and you're not seeking the Lord's will, but you're seeking the will of your own self. And you're willing to go to the point where you ruin the reputation of another Christian. This is not a person who pursued Matthew 18, where they brought a testimony of a faithful witness with them. This is unfounded behavior. And that's the kind of speech, the kind of behavior, if not repentant for, the Lord will judge. And we understand it's so severe that I mentioned before in Titus 3.10, we're to push those people who do this out of the church. They're not to be a part of fellowship they're not to be met anymore for meals. They are to be somebody you reach back out to for the sake of repenting because they slandered the, ac the character in, ac in accusing another Christian of something so severe that was unfounded. 
Matthew says we're to take the log out of our own eye, then we'll see clearly. Take the speck out of the brother's eye. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that we don't judge outsiders. We do practice judging one another within the church, but as a part of that, it means having reputable, trustworthy statements that are verifiable in clear behavior we see in another believer. It is not the idea of being guilty of something yourself and bringing it to another believer or bringing unfounded information against the attack of a Christian. That will result in ingathering or infighting. So I just want to be clear again about the two principles. When we judge clear offenses of God's word, we need to make sure we're not personally guilty of it ourselves. And avoid slander is the second principle. Don't make misinformed judgments on others without verifiable evidence of the testimony of two or three others. The only person we call sin out in regards to the intentions of the heart is ourselves. That's what we learn in verses 1 through 6. I was at the Grand Canyon with uh, many Christian leaders. There's a church, if I mentioned the pastor, you would know him the drop of a hat, and when he retired, a very celebrity-type kind of pastor, a godly guy, the man that was transitioning to be the pastor afterwards took over, and that's a difficult task to do, to bring the character of a person who was faithful for many years, and within three years, in an elder meeting, he made a false accusation towards another elder, and the other elders actually were able to pull up um, verifiable membership meeting uh, video of this accusation and said it was not founded and he was pushed out of the church within three years. Now that can happen in leadership, it can happen anywhere. We need to remember it's so severe when this happens. We're not to be doers of the law because that's the Lord's responsibility. There's only one lawgiver and verse 12 reminds us of that. We bring glory to God by letting him do the judging work of the intentions of the heart. We don't seek our own thoughts on the motives and intentions of another person's heart. That's the Lord's responsibility. In fact, it's his responsibility to the point where this is used in a par excellence way. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one. There's no other mentioning, no other worth mentioning anybody in the world that has the responsibility for judging the intentions of another person's heart. Bottom line, Avoid being offensive by getting in the way of God's exclusive role in judging what lies beneath. I'll leave us just with a thought from 1 John chapter 3. We are to love one another, not to fight one another. Okay? And it says this in 1 John chapter 3 verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was, at, who, um, who was of evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Similar language. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother. We're going to continue to expect conflict in the church, amidst members, amidst marriages, amidst siblings, but we should expect to be able to get past what lies beneath 
seeking the glory of God and understanding that God is the ultimate judge of the intentions of the heart. Let us pray and then we'll get ready for communion. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sobering thought from James and just our understanding of what it means to get past conflict in our very church here. We praise you for being the true judge, and we thank you for the opportunity now to worship you in communion. In your name, amen.